Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's Religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Conservative Catholic critics of Pope Francis are referring to 2023 as his Year Zero, a time of revolutionary upheaval initiated by an 86-year-old pontiff who feels liberated by the death of his predecessor, Benedict XVI, on New Year's Eve. Events are moving fast. This October, the world's bishops will gather for a synod in which left-wing lay activists have been given an advisory vote by the Pope and permission to discuss ultra-sensitive topics such as women's ordination and blessings for same-sex couples. It's true that Francis has rejected attempts by the ultra-progressive and ultra-empty German church to pursue a liberal Protestant agenda without reference to Rome. That's not surprising. One largely unreported feature of this pontificate is an extreme concentration of power in the papal office. Any alterations to church teaching and pastoral practice will be initiated by Francis alone, and he has a distinctive modus operandi. Rather than proposing specific changes, he rarely misses an opportunity to undermine the historic guardians of orthodoxy. And now he's taken a dramatic and irreversible step. In the past, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, now renamed the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, has had the job of protecting the Church from heresy and other theological misjudgments. But at the beginning of July, the Pope handed control of this doctrinal watchdog to his Argentinian protégé, Archbishop, soon to be Cardinal, Victor Manuel Fernández, and he did so with the instruction that Fernandez should shift its emphasis from rooting out error to more creative endeavours. Fernandez needed no encouragement. Even before taking office, he's already mothballed a ban on same-sex blessings that was issued by the CDF as recently as 2021 and was assumed to have Francis's full support. In an interview marking his appointment, Fernandez said that Quotes, if a blessing is given in such a way that it does not cause that confusion, i.e. does not appear to be a gay wedding, it will have to be analysed and confirmed. What on earth does that mean? You can see why Fernandez's appointment has alarmed Conservative Catholics more than anything else Francis has done, and that includes his notoriously savage restrictions on the celebration of the Latin Mass. The Pope himself describes it as a turning point. In this week's Holy Smoke, I discuss the possible consequences with the moral theologian Father Alexander Lucy Smith. He shares my view that an earthquake has hit the Catholic Church. But he also asks, given the indifference of so many Catholics towards matters of doctrine, have they even noticed? So, Father Alexander, over the last few weeks, the new prefect of the to Castri for the Doctrine of the Faith, has given lots of interviews, and his main purpose in these interviews seems to be to distance himself from the way the Catholic Church approached the subject of doctrine in the past. In other words, like Pope Francis, he seems dismayed by the emphasis on doctrinal error and wants a new approach in which various possibilities are at least discussed, such as women deacons and 
gay blessings. He doesn't, unlike the German radicals, he doesn't make clear and radical and very controversial policy proposals. What he does is say, let's rethink, which is the word he used, for example, his predecessor's 2021 document ruling out gay blessings in church. He said, let's let's rethink it. Asked about the subject of the church's attitude to homosexuality and particularly the line that it's objectively disordered. He says, well, that's not the sort of language the Pope would use. And so effectively, the Catholic teaching that homosexuality is objectively disordered has been consigned to the waste paper basket. There's a whole slew of indications that the new doctrinal watchdog of the church, rather than condemning error, wants some sort of theological creativity. But the theological creativity seems to consist of being open to the same radical demands that we hear on the Catholic left and that we've heard and have been acceded to in the Church of England. It's very confusing. Tell me how you interpret what's happening. Yes, I think you're right, Damien, when you say that we've heard all these things before, haven't we? And we've been hearing them for a very long time, things like gay blessings and so on. It's one thing or another, but it's a push in the same general direction, the push that's happened in the Church of England, for example, the push that's coming from Germany. He hasn't been very specific about it, has he? This is part of the Fernandez way of doing it. He does seem rather wordy, and he does seem, as one uh, German website described it, wishy-washy. They had to explain what wishy-washy meant. The real thing about Fernandez is, I think, taking the focus away from doctrine as such and moving the focus to the way we talk about religion and how we talk about the truths of faith taking the focus off the idea that there is a truth of faith that is accessible to the mind of the faithful and which can be expressed in human language, and moving towards a more amorphous position, which says that essentially a sort of double think, you can have two things at the same time. You can support marriage and at the same time you can support gay blessings, that the two do not contradict each other or that the contradiction is something we can all live with. So I think it's moving from a mathematical model of doing theology, where everything is cut and dried, everything is clear, and there are lines that cannot be crossed, to a more creative, but a more confusing and a more amorphous way of doing things in which you say, well, we cannot be sure about this. And that was, of course, largely the method in Amoris Laetitiae, which we know was written by Archbishop Fernandez. It had the Pope's name on it, of course, but it was he was the ghostwriter of Amoris Laetitiae. All papal documents have ghostwriters. Generally speaking, who the ghostwriter is is kept a strict secret. But in the case of Archbishop Fernandez, it was easy to work out that he was the ghostwriter because there were large chunks of Amoris Laetitiae that had already appeared in the writings of Archbishop Fernandez. This is actually in itself a radical departure from the past, even if Fernandez is not attaching his name to specific radical plans. The thing about the Catholic Church is that various difficult, controversial, sensitive topics have been addressed 
head-on that Catholic teaching has been relatively cut and dried when it comes to abortion, homosexuality, the ordination of women, all these subjects that people get so upset about. Catholic teaching, whatever gloss has been put on it by various popes and various heads of the CDF, has been relatively straightforward. What we see now is a pope saying in the letter in which he appointed Fernandez, telling him that in the past, rather than promoting theological knowledge, possible doctrinal errors were pursued. What I expect from you is certainly something very different, something you have since called a turning point. And Fernandez himself says that he sees his role as guarding the recent magisterium, which is his way, basically, of describing the teachings, if you can call them that, because they are so worldly, of Pope Francis. There's more than a whiff of year zero about this, isn't there? There's more than a whiff of, well, the way we did things in the past is not the way we do things now. And it's almost as if 2,000 years of hermeneutic have been torn up. Absolutely. With the year zero idea, and year zero is a very popular idea, both in theology and in politics. I mean, Pol Pot, I think, was the guy who used the phrase year zero, first of all. It goes back right to a Muhammad, who Muslims believe to be a prophet, who talked about the age of ignorance. Before the time of Muhammad, it was the age of ignorance. Everything was to be discounted. Professor Dawkins also speaks of a year zero in that he says that before the understanding of the theory of evolution, people had no knowledge it was worth having. Alexander Pope said, he said, nature's laws lay set in night. God said, let Newton be and all was light. So Pope was sending up this idea that knowledge began with Isaac Newton. The type of theology books that I used to read in the old days, they all, if they were written by liberal progressive theologians, all of them took the idea that we didn't understand human nature until a certain point in, let's say, the year 1968. Then we understood human nature, and then we realised all our theology was based on a mistaken picture of human nature. Therefore, all our theology had to be revised. Now, there is a grain of truth in this. If you have a mistaken view of human nature and you build a theology on the mistaken view of human nature, your theology will have to be revised. There's no doubt about that. And there are many silly things that the Catholic Church said in the past, which we no longer say, because our knowledge of human nature and of biology has changed. But the idea that somehow we go to ground zero or year zero at a certain point, and we suddenly start to get it right, I think goes very much against the whole grain of Catholic teaching, which was best expressed by St. Augustine and later by Cardinal Newman, the idea that our understanding of divine revelation grows over time. It doesn't change. Divine revelation doesn't change. What grows is our understanding of it. And in other words, theology is organic. Certain branches of the theological tree wither and have to be removed. They're pruned away but the tree continues to flourish. We don't cut down the tree and say it's time for a new tree. Um, I hope Archbishop Fernandez is not suggesting that, because if he were suggesting that, he would really be going out on a limb. I don't think he is suggesting that, but what I pick up from him, and I also especially pick up from the participants in this time-wasting synod on synodality, is that 
It's almost as if suddenly the Holy Spirit is speaking through this Pope and a particular faction in the church which is attached to this Pope. It reminds me a bit of the followers of Joachim Fury, the medieval Italian apocalyptic prophet who announced the imminent dawning of an age of the Spirit in which everything would become clear, a new dispensation. And if you listen to the way that those most closely attached to Pope Francis identify themselves with the Holy Spirit quite, in, in quite a sort of shameless and embarrassing way, it does feel as if it's year zero. And I noticed that on Twitter the other day, you made a reference to a long march through the institutions, which I thought was very interesting, as if they, with the appointment of Fernandez, a man who is prepared to, it seems cast aside difficult teachings in really rather a casual way. He doesn't strike me as a great scholar. A citadel has fallen. Absolutely. This thing about the Holy Spirit is an interesting one, because if you remember back in 1968, when both you and I were in our cradles, the controversy that was being fought in the Catholic Church was about artificial contraception. And there was a group that gathered around Paul VI and said Paul VI's encyclical was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was the voice of God. And therefore, anybody who disagreed with Paul VI was wrong. And um, a lot of those people who disagreed with Paul VI were marginalised. There's no doubt about that. What's happened now is the boot is on the other foot. The progressives who gathered around Pope Francis have said Pope Francis speaks with the full power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, anybody who disagrees with Pope Francis must be wrong and they're against the Holy Spirit. You're not just against Pope Francis. So that's how they are choosing to fight it. They got their um, their plan of battle, I'm afraid to say, from those who first of all started this war off in 1968. Now, 1968, as you know, Soissons wheat was a very, very important year in European culture. That was the year when Cardinal Ratzinger stopped being a liberal and became a conservative. That was the year of the student revolts. And that was the year when, inside the Catholic Church, it was clear they were going to hold out against the tide of change. They were not going to adapt themselves to the modern world. And that's why the contraception thing was such a massive battle. And that battle is still being played out. It's now almost 60 years ago, but the long march through the institutions has carried on since then. They've been blocked by the papal ban on artificial birth control. They haven't been able to dislodge that. But you know what you do? You treat it like the Maginot line. You don't do a full frontal assault on it. They tried that for many decades. You just go around the back and you just ignore it. And that's what happened to the Maginot line, you remember. It turned out not to be such a bulwark against invasion. Now, the DDF, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, for many, many years was seen as ultra-conservative when it was headed up by Cardinal Ratzinger. In fact, it's parody to say Cardinal Ratzinger was ultra-conservative. He was just a middle-of-the-road Catholic who was holding out against some really loopy theological ideas. But of course, because he held to Catholic tradition, he was seen as the enemy. Now it seems that the DDF is going to undo the Ratzingerian inheritance. Don't forget, the late Pope Benedict XVI, formerly Cardinal Ratzinger, has only just died. And that, I think, is significant, that his old department can now be Bergolianized. And, of course, the chief of the Janissaries of Pope Francis is Archbishop Fernandez. 
So I think that is what is going on here, the long march through the institutions. But incidentally, the DDF is the last to fall. But what's happened to all the other institutions in the Catholic Church, such as the canon law department? What's happened to the department that deals with Catholic universities and Catholic education? We hear very little from them nowadays. They too have been hollowed out. They haven't been abolished. Rather, they've been taken over from the inside. And with the taking over from the inside of the DDF, I think, you know, the game is up. The Ratzinger project seems to be over. It almost seems as if the Orthodox Catholic project is over in the sense that over the last few years, we've seen people with views radically opposed to those of the Catholic Church, environmentalists and artists and political activists, welcome to the Vatican, even though they disagree with church teaching on the most fundamental level. And the new magisterium doesn't seem to have a problem with this. The enemies of John Paul II, or the people who were most hugely opposed to John Paul II, have all been welcomed into the Vatican. There's no doubt about that. The one who really sticks out in my mind is Emma Bonino, the woman who led the struggle for the uh, legalisation of abortion in Italy the one who was so against what she called clerico-fascism, she's been admitted into the Vatican um, and sort of embraced by the Pope. And, of course, we also had quite a lot of Italian public intellectuals who were very much against what they saw as clericalism, who have been embraced by the Pope. Now, this embracing of your enemies is, of course, something that Catholics are supposed to do. But at the same time, we have to understand that our first allegiance is always going to be to the truth. And we have to speak truth to power. People like Emma Bonino, incredibly influential and important. It's not that they're downtrodden voices. Uh, we have to tell them, no, you are wrong. And we have to insist on that as a matter of charity to the people themselves and also to the wider community. We cannot give the impression that somehow or another truth is up to grabs and truth is negotiable. We do not believe in your truth, my truth. We believe in the truth, the transcendent truth. But that's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. What's happening is that the Catholic Church is vigorously embracing the leaders of progressive thought to the point where one gets the impression that the Vatican is actually disowning its own intellectual and spiritual heritage. I mean, we've seen the way that the traditional Latin mass has been viciously crushed within the lifetime of the Pope who reintroduced it to the life of the Church. That in itself is an indication that the imposition of the new magisterium can be very brutal. And we've reached a stage where, if you were to ask me, what is the Catholic line on homosexuality? What's the Catholic line on gay blessings? What's the Catholic line on women deacons? I would just have to say that rather, as was the case in the Church of England in the 1980s, these things are up for grabs. But I was under the impression that the Catholic Church was a church in which various things were not up for grabs. You're absolutely right. John Paul II wrote an encyclical in which more or less he said that the um, question of female ordination was closed. And what John Paul II tried to do, and it was objected to at the time, he tried to bind his successors, saying, I define this more or less for all time. He couldn't actually use that canonical formula, but the idea was he was putting up a roadblock so that future popes would not be able to get round it. Now, there is a problem about this. 
in that whatever Archbishop Fernandez comes out with when he's in charge of the DDF, people will again say, but hang on, what about John Paul II? What about Paul VI? What about Benedict XVI? They said something that was rather different. And you're going to have an awful lot of confusion there. Isn't this going to make life very difficult for people like you, parish priests faced by real pastoral dilemmas? Let me emphasise that I think in many ways the situation was already difficult because Catholic teaching on homosexuality, for example, is not popular, even with the people in the pew. And I don't, I'm not sure that it's even that popular with the younger generation of traditionalists, some of whom I think are uncomfortable with language objectively disordered, which, according to Archbishop Fernandez, has now been ditched. But nonetheless, there are many situations in which traditionally the church has said, to divorce and remarried people, sorry, you can't receive communion, it's very painful, I'm sorry about this, but we'll find a, you know, we'll find a spiritual route for you. And in which it's said to gay couples, well, we can't bless what you're doing, we can't bless your relationship because we think it's intrinsically sinful. And that's gone out of the window if you listen to Archbishop Fernandez and if you listen to the hints given by the Pope and if you listen to many of the discussions lined up for the forthcoming synod, so what does a Catholic priest say when he's confronted by couples in pastorally sensitive situations? The answers are not provided for you in the way that they were even 10 years ago. Correct. Now, there's two things there that I would just sort of challenge. If you listen to Archbishop Fernandez and if you go to your parish priest for advice, I think most parish priests would say very few people are coming to them for advice. Very few people come to their parish priest saying, look, I'm gay and I'm thinking of moving in with my boyfriend or something. You do get older people who want to talk about their children, but people wanting to talk about their own situations, it's very rare. The other thing is, if you listen to Archbishop Fernandez, who exactly is listening to Archbishop Fernandez? He's given about 20 interviews since he was designated as the head of the DDF. But who's listening? You know, you can give as many interviews as you like, but are they actually making much difference? You're listening to Archbishop Fernandez. I'm listening to Archbishop Fernandez because I feel I have to. But on the whole, we're living in an era where fewer and fewer people are listening to what the hierarchy is saying, either the bishops at a local level or the heads of dicasteries in Rome or indeed the Pope himself. The days have passed when, for example, people say the Pope needs to speak out. We're waiting for the Pope to speak. If you go back to 1939, people were waiting for the Pope to speak about Hitler and about Mussolini. And of course, Pope Pius XI did speak. People were expecting the Pope to speak. They were looking up, waiting for a papal pronouncement. Nobody is waiting for papal pronouncements anymore. Pius XI in particular, his statements were extremely hard-hitting. I'm thinking of Mit Brennende Sorge, with burning concern, which he wrote to the German church, was read out in all churches and was listened to by everybody. It drove Hitler mad with rage. And also the non abbiamo bisogno, we have no need, which was written to the Italian church. These things made a huge difference. They really did pack a punch. Pius XII also made big impacts with his encyclicals, which were short, punchy and to the point and addressed matters of burning concern. But the more recent things that we've heard from the Vatican the Vatican has got answers, but it's got answers to questions people are not asking. That is a very, very severe problem for us all. Well, I agree with you, because 
One of the things about papal statements in the past is that there weren't very many of them, so people listen. Now, this Pope never shuts up. Almost every day, certainly at least once a week, he will extemporize in a way that would have been inconceivable for his predecessors. He says all sorts of things. He contradicts himself all the time. He doesn't seem particularly bothered by the fact that he contradicts himself. He hints at things. He settles scores, endlessly settles scores with his conservative enemies, often in a very sort of mean-spirited and uncharitable way, which makes a nonsense of his uh, attacks on traditionalists for being unkind. So it seems as if at the very moment when people have stopped listening to the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church has suddenly started blathering about all sorts of subjects about which it knows no more than anybody else, such as climate change. It never shuts up about that. And sowing confusion. This, for Catholics of our generation, would have been unthinkable when we were growing up. Certainly the papacy has changed, hasn't it? We no longer are living in the epoch of John Paul II, who was a world figure. Don't forget John Paul II was a global figure who did intervene um, against communism just by being himself. And then communism disappeared. And none of us thought communism would ever disappear at the time. The, John Paul II never really got involved in Italian politics. He always left that to Italian cardinals, whereas the present pontiff has intervened in Italian politics several times, despite the fact that he's not an Italian. The papacy has changed. It seems that it has to have an opinion about everything. I do agree with you on that. Just recently, the Pope was talking about these immigrants who are stranded in the Sahara Desert, calling upon Euro European governments to rescue them. That, again, is not necessarily the job of the Pope. He has to tell people about the universal law of charity, I agree. But this this um, attention to detail, I think, is ultimately self-defeating. But, you know, every institution that we have grown up with, you and I, Damien, has changed in our lifetimes in a way that we never would have foreseen. If you think about, let's say, the British monarchy... If you remember Queen Elizabeth II, young and beautiful in the 1950s, look at her son now, our dear king. He's completely different to his mother. He's a good king, I think, but the, the monarchy has changed. If you look at the Conservative Party, once the party of um, Harold Macmillan and Sir Alec Douglas Hume, that has changed enormously. We now have a Conservative Party that conserves nothing and that is by no means right wing, it seems to me. We've got a Labour Party that doesn't stand up for workers' rights, it seems to me. Look at the Liberal Party, which is anything but liberal or indeed democratic. Look at our universities and how they've changed. Everything has changed. The huge wave of change that started off in 1968 has swept even into the corridors of the Vatican. Now, the terrible thing about this is that just when it seemed that the tide might be changing back, the Vatican has jumped on the bandwagon of change, just when change was ending. I would point people to what I think is the greatest document of Cardinal Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict XVI, in which he talks about liberation theology. And he concludes... Jesus Christ doesn't need a dose of Marxism to make himself relevant and interesting to the people of today. If we want to make Christianity relevant and interesting to the people of today, we just need to draw upon the infinite riches of Christ. 
and I think Cardinal Ratzinger was completely correct, to say, why get into bed with the Marxists just when Marxism is going out of fashion? One of the tragedies of the Catholic Church is it tends to discover fashion just when it's going out of fashion. So it's a bit like your granny dressing up in a miniskirt. It doesn't look good. But at the same time, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Sorry about the cliché. But on so many topics, the progressives are actually in touch with public opinion. On abortion, on homosexuality, on not the public opinion, has particularly strong feelings about access to the Eucharist, but you name it, public opinion, generally speaking, is in line with these sometimes sneaky and subliminal, sometimes explicit messages coming out of the Vatican. Given that, I think it will be extremely hard for very orthodox pastors to hold the line in their parishes. Absolutely. You're absolutely right about that. The genie is out of the bottle. Somehow or another, I think we need to do a sort of um, a sleight of hand, a rather Bergolian tactic. We need to, to some extent, go round the back. We need to recall to people or to present to people rather than joining in these arguments about homosexuality and so on, we need to outflank the entire argument and we need to go back to the foundation of Christianity, which is a faith that lifts the mind and heart to God. We need to rediscover the transcendent in Christianity. So we can say, let's dial down the earthly chatter, which is what this is, and let us try and seek the greatness of God. Let us try and seek that which is beyond ourselves. Let us have more emphasis on the transcendent. And I think that was the project of Pope Benedict XVI, that the real argument for Christianity is the argument from beauty, the argument from transcendence, and the argument of heroic lives. Let's point to the heroism of the Christian life, rather than get stuck into arguments which, in the end, we can't win, because people have lost the ability to argue, apart from anything else. Yet you yourself would firmly defend the Church's traditional teaching on, for example, abortion. Absolutely. So I'm trying to understand how this subtle tactic of emphasising the transcendent and dialing down what you call the earthly chatter. And it's not necessarily earthly chatter if it's dealing with subjects as fundamental as human life. I genuinely find it very hard to foresee a healthy future for the Catholic Church, except perhaps in a few isolated communities who, unless we're careful, will hold views so very much at variance with that of the surrounding society that they will look like militant sects. Well, militant sects are not attractive to the wider world, are they? They're exclusive groups. The church has got to be inclusive. It's got to have its doors open. It's got to be a place where all peoples can feel at home. I think what we've got to emphasise is that inside each person, there's often a desire for the transcendent. And we've got to offer an experience of the transcendent, an experience of beauty, and an experience of silence, and an experience of prayer. I think that is what is lacking in the modern Catholic Church. We don't spend much of our energy talking about prayer and talking about how we get in contact with God. We're talking about all these other things, abortion, homosexuality, access to the Eucharist, but we perhaps have lost the 
fundamental idea is why would anybody want to have access to the Eucharist in the first place? What is it they're trying to find? What is this call that we've received from God? Do you hear it? And do you want to respond? Is there something that is tugging at your heartstrings? It's been a long time since we've had much instruction from on high about prayer, about the nitty-gritty of Catholicism. I remember Cardinal Hume wrote a book about prayer, which I read as a teenager, but I don't think I've read a book about prayer written by a bishop, a cardinal, or indeed a pope since then. I think um, when you consider Catholicism, it's still got a unique selling point. It's got a millennial, bimillennial tradition. There's much that's great about Catholicism, and a lot of people have not been put off by the very torrid couple of decades that we've experienced. And we need to push back the undergrowth and discover the treasure that's there at the heart of the church, because there is a treasure at the heart of the church, and that is knowledge of God, being with God, communion with our brethren and communion with God. That was Father Alexander Lucy Smith, and it's always such a pleasure to have him on this podcast. I just wish I could share his optimism.